Welcome to About Scripture, a podcast designed to take the listener deeper into Scripture and biblical thought. I'm Ed Gallagher, professor of Christian Scripture at Heritage Christian University. I hope to cover a variety of topics with you about Scripture. This podcast is brought to you in partnership with Heritage Christian University, where we help students to thrive in ministry. To find out more, go to hcu.edu. We're also partnering with the Ministry League Network. They have free resources to help the local church all over the world. Download the app in the iOS or Play Store, or check out the website at ministryleague.com. And now, welcome to the podcast. Hello, podcast audience. This episode is a recording of a sermon that I did at Sherrod Avenue sometime in the past few years. And uh, it is focused on some aspect of the plan of salvation, our response to God's offer of grace. I hope you enjoy it and benefit from it. Naaman. Now, Naaman was not an Israelite. Naaman was from a country called Aram, which was just north of Israel. And since he was from the country of Aram, he was called an Aramean. And Naaman had a problem. He had this uh, skin disease. We read in our Bibles that he had leprosy, whether it was the kind of leprosy we know today, I don't know. I don't know exactly what it was, but he had a skin disease he couldn't get rid of, and he didn't know what to do about it. He heard that down in Israel, there's this fellow named Elisha, who was a prophet, who could cure such things, who had been known to perform wondrous works. So Naaman went down to Elisha's house. He knocked on Elisha's door. Elisha sent out a messenger. Elisha did not go himself. himself. He sent out a messenger, and, and the messenger said to Naaman, go to the Jordan River and dip in the Jordan River seven times, and your leprosy will be cured. Some of you remember this story. You know Naaman got mad. Now just imagine yourself. Let's say you have today, imagine the year is 2021. That shouldn't be too hard to imagine. Imagine that you have an incurable disease. And you have decided you are going to go see a prophet. There has been... A, we have seen these people on TV, right? Well, you, there has been somebody on TV, and you just I'm going to go to that guy, and he is going to heal. What would you expect him to do? We have we we have seen the TV programs, and so we sort of know. I mean, there's this fella that I've sometimes watched. He'll he'll take off his coat jacket, sort of swing it around. He'll pronounce words on people. They'll fall over back. And, you know, according to the TV show, they're cured of whatever ailment they had. Well, Naaman expected Elisha to do that. Naaman actually says, after this messenger came out and, and told him what you need to do is go to the Jordan River and dip seven times, Naaman said, what? I thought he would come out, he would wave his hand around and pronounce some magic words, and my leprosy would be, would be gone at that point. I I don't want to go to this nasty Jordan River. I got better rivers up in Aram. Why would I do that? It doesn't make any sense. 
And Naaman had brought his own servant with him, and the servant said, Naaman, come on, man. If he had said, do some wonderful, hard thing to get rid of your wouldn't you have done it? If, if he had said, you know, march to the top of this mountain and take a, take a rose with you and plant it at the top of the mountain and then, and then say some words and your leprosy, wouldn't you have done that? How much more ought you to do it if he simply says, wash and be clean? I have some sympathy with Naaman. I have some sympathy with Naaman because the means of cleansing doesn't necessarily make a whole lot of sense. But that's what God wanted him to do. Now, this morning, we're, we're talking about baptism. And I am not the first one. You have heard the comparison with Naaman before. I'm not the first one to think baptism. That's sort of like what Naaman did in 2 Kings 5. We've heard this comparison before. But one of the aspects of the comparison I think is worth reflecting on that baptism doesn't necessarily, it might not have been the way we would develop to get in a right relationship with God. We might have come up with some other way. We might have thought, well, what we really, the way it ought to happen is we just say a prayer and, and we, we sort of confess our sins to God and, and God promises to forgive us of our sins. We might have developed that sort of a method. Baptism isn't necessarily the method we would have developed, but the thing about it is it's in the New Testament and God tells us to do it. The servant of Naaman told him, wash and be clean. That's what God wants you to do. Peter, in 1 Peter 3.21, there's this verse, we'll look at it again in a little bit, but Peter compares baptism to a kind of washing as well. You go into that water and it's not about cleansing your flesh, even though you go into the water and it is like taking a bath. I mean, there's, there's a similarity there, but you, you, it's not about cleansing the flesh, but it's about the pledge of a good conscience toward God. And if there's a cleansing that happens, it's not about washing dirt from the body. It's about cleansing the soul. Tertullian is a Latin writer from around the year 200. Let me see if I have his quote about baptism. He says, a man is lowered into water and with intervals for a few words is dipped and rises up again, not much cleaner or even no cleaner. That might be a little bit hard for us to imagine, but you've, you've at least seen the pictures or the videos of River, or you've, you've been, you've seen rivers, bodies of water that you would think, if I go into that body of water, I'm not going to be any cleaner if I come back out. Tertullian was living in an area like that. You go into that water and you come up, you're not really any cleaner than when you went in. But Tertullian says, and yet an incredible result in eternity is deemed to be assured. Might not make a whole lot of sense to us, but it is what we see in the New Testament. 
And really, I mean, we're not the only ones. Everybody sees this in the New Testament. Everybody who reads the New Testament sees that baptism is super important. I'm, I'm going to read to you a quote from this fellow named David De Silva, who is a New Testament scholar. He is a Methodist. He was raised as an Anglican. And this is what he says about, he says, Christians love to argue about all kinds of things and about baptism. Christians love to argue about all kinds of things with regard to baptism as well. And we're going to talk about some of those things this morning. But he says, but Christians tend to agree that baptism is the fundamental right of entry into Christ's body, the church, the initiation into the journey of transformation into Christ's likeness. Now, you may have thought that baptism is sort of a particularly uh, Church of Christ thing to do or thing to think is really important. Everybody who reads the New Testament recognizes baptism is super important. They like to disagree on all kinds of aspects with regard to baptism, but they recognize baptism is super important. That's not something we have discovered in the text. People have noticed that as long as they've been reading the New Testament. There are, I would say many, I think many works, New Testament verses that emphasize the importance of baptism. We could probably read through, oh, I don't know, 15 or so. I'm, I plan on reading to, through right now about uh, maybe six or seven just to emphasize the importance in the New Testament of baptism, let's start with the, the Great Commission. I'm going to run through, I'm going to flip through my Bible. You don't necessarily have to turn there, but I'll read out the verse to you. The Great Commission in Matthew 28, this is verse 19. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything that I have commanded you. Jesus said to his apostles. Acts 2, 38. Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, so that your sins may be forgiven, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Acts 22, verse 16. This is... Ananias talking to Paul, and now why do you delay? Get up, be baptized, have your sins washed away, calling on the name, calling on his name. Romans 6 was read to us by Andrew just a minute ago. Remember, that's the, the one, I'm not going to read it to you now, but that's the one that says when you go into baptism, you are reenacting the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus, and you are dying to your sin in that moment. Galatians 3 27. As many as of you as were baptized into Christ have clothed yourselves with Christ. Colossians 2, verse, well, I'll start in verse 11. In him also you were circumcised with a circumcision not with hands, by putting off the body of the flesh in the circumcision of Christ, when you, when you were also, when you were buried with him in baptism, 
You were also raised with him through faith in the power of God who raised him from the dead. And then 1 Peter 3.21. And baptism, which this prefigured, he's, he's been talking about the flood. He says this prefigured baptism now saves you, not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. It's hard not to get the message as you're reading through the New Testament that baptism is pretty important. And so as I say, everyone who has read the New Testament has decided that the New Testament thinks baptism is pretty important. That doesn't mean that people don't argue about certain things with regard to baptism. And I guess it would be true to say, at least in my own experience, as far as I know, Churches of Christ have taken a somewhat distinctive position on baptism. And I'm going to talk about three things that we do, that uh, you are very familiar with. Not any one of those three things is unique to us in terms of practice. Not any one of those three things is, in fact, unusual in the world of Christianity. I, I'm going to talk about how we baptize uh, not babies, but people who believe. There are a whole bunch of Christian groups that do that. whole bunch. That is not distinctive to us at all. I'm going to talk about how we practice baptism for the forgiveness of sins. That is not distinctive to us at all. A whole, I would say probably the majority of people in this world who call themselves Christians believe that baptism is for the forgiveness of sins. It is not distinctive to us at all. I'm going to talk about how we practice baptism by immersion. That is not distinctive to us at all. I don't know if it's the majority or not. I, I guess not. But there are a whole bunch of Christian groups who think that you ought to baptize by immersion. Not distinctive to us at all. Immersing people, not distinctive to us. Baptizing by the forgiveness of sins, not distinctive to us. Baptizing only people who are believers, not babies, not distinctive to us. But what I think is sort of distinctive, or at least I don't know of another group who have emphasized it, is the combination of those three. It might be my own ignorance, but I don't know of another group besides Churches of Christ who would combine those three elements. Let's talk first about immersion. We baptize by immersion. Uh, here is, behind me is this, basically it's a big tub of water. We call it a baptistry. It's just a big tub of water. And the, the reason we got that in there uh, is so that we can dunk people. When people want to get baptized, we want to dunk them under the water. Now, the reason we want to do that, it, I mean, it's pretty simple. The word baptism means immersion. Right? Well, the word baptism in English might mean all kinds of stuff, but our English Bibles are translated from Greek, the, the New Testament, and so the, there, there's a Greek word, baptisma. It's just the word baptism with an A on the end. Baptisma. That Greek word means immersion. 
You look it up in a Greek dictionary and it'll tell you, I mean, it might give different words. It might not say immerse. It might say plunge or dip or wash, but it means get all the way wet. And so the reason we practice baptism by immersion is because that's what the Greek word means. Maybe that's not the only reason. It's also because of the symbolism in the New Testament. We've read some of that symbolism already this morning that Peter says that, that baptism is a kind of a bath, a bath where your soul gets cleaned and not your flesh. Well, in order for that symbolism to work, you got to use a lot of water. At least I use a lot of water when I take a bath. Uh, I don't just sprinkle it on my head. Uh, I use a lot of water. And so for the symbolism to work, you dip people, you plunge them. Paul says the symbolism of baptism is a burial. That's Romans 6. We read it earlier. Uh, Andrew read it for us. Baptism is a kind of burial. And so when we baptize people, we want to bury them, not just because that's what the Greek word means, but because we want to have them experience the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, just as Paul talks about in Romans 6. I said we're not the only ones who have, who have come to this conclusion that baptism ought to be a kind of a, a burial, or at least that you ought to uh, immerse people. Of course, there is a whole group of people, uh, of, of Christians, that are called Baptists, and the reason they're called Baptists is because they plunge people. That's the way they practice baptism, is, is by dunking people underwater. They have come to that same conclusion that we have come to as well. They're not the only ones as well. I was recently reading this book by a Greek Orthodox archbishop, and this is what he says about the practice of baptism in the Greek Orthodox Church. He says, baptism signifies a mystical burial and resurrection with Christ. Then he cites Romans 6. And the outward sign of this is the plunging of the candidate in the baptistry, followed by the emergence from the water. He says, baptism therefore requires immersion or burial. He goes on to say, baptism by sprinkling or smearing is quite simply not real baptism at all. I think we have been able to see how he comes to that conclusion. The word means immersion. The symbolism in the New Testament requires the immersion. And so we practice baptism by immersion We practice baptism for the purpose of forgiveness of sins. The reason we do that is because the New Testament connects baptism to the forgiveness of sins. We read Acts 2.38. For a lot of people in here, Acts 2.38 may be the most familiar verse in the entire New Testament. I mean, that's one we have quoted a lot. And the reason we quote it a lot is because it connects baptism to the forgiveness of sins. Peter told those people on the day of Pentecost, you got to repent and then let each of you be baptized in the name of Jesus for the forgiveness of sins. That is the point. Or we, we could 
talk about Acts 22.16, which also has that reference to you get baptized and you wash away your sins in baptism. Or or 1 Peter 3.21, where he, he talks about baptism is sort of like a bath, but it, what it does is baptism now saves you, Peter says. The New Testament connects baptism to the forgiveness of sins, and so we practice baptism for the forgiveness of sins. Again, it might not have been the way we come up with how to get our sins forgiven. Dip in water, and that'll lead to your sins being forgiven. We might have thought, well, let's do it some other way. Let's do a, you know, a, a, let's do a prayer. Let's do something sort of spiritual. Why are we doing this physical act of being dipped in water? How does that connect at all? Well, there are ways it connects, isn't it? The, the, the New Testament has explanations of the symbolism. It's like a spiritual bath. It's like a burial with Jesus, Paul says. Again, we're not the only ones who have seen the New Testament teaching on baptism as connected to forgiveness of sins. I would go so far as to say the majority of people in this world who call themselves Christians would say baptism is essential for the forgiveness of sins. I can make that sort of claim because I got one group that represents the majority of people in the world that call themselves Christians and they teach baptism is essential for the forgiveness of sins. That group is, of course, the Roman Catholic Church. In fact, that is why they baptize babies, to get those baby sins forgiven. Going back a long way, Going back a long way, there's this church writer named Augustine. You've heard of Augustine. He's the guy that wrote the Confessions. Maybe you've read the Confessions before. I, I tell you what, I love me some Augustine. The Confessions is fantastic. I love the Confessions. There, I don't agree with everything in the Confessions, but I mean, do I have to say that? I mean, what book besides the Bible do I agree with everything on? I love the Confessions. But there, Augustine, I think, would be the first one to tell you that he is not as knowledgeable about Christianity as he ought to be. And I'm about to tell you something where I think he could have used a little more knowledge. He says, Augustine says, not in the Confessions, but in a different work. Augustine said, this is the year 400 AD. Augustine said, I know that babies have sin. I know that babies are sinful. Says, I'll tell you how I know. I know that babies are sinful because we baptize babies. And if babies weren't sinful, we wouldn't baptize them. Why else would we baptize babies except to get their sins forgiven? That's how I know they have sin, because we baptize them. You might think, well, that doesn't make a whole lot of sense. Why, why don't you just not baptize babies? But the, the point I'm trying to make is baptism was so closely connected to the forgiveness of sins in Augustine's mind that he could not imagine why we would go through the process of baptizing babies unless we were saying the baby came out of the womb sinful. Of course, for Augustine, uh, as for the Roman Catholic Church, I suppose, as a whole, 
babies come out of the womb sinful because they are inheriting the sin of Adam. And so it's not just that you're sinful because you do sinful things, but you are sinful because you have a sinful nature that you didn't create yourself, you have inherited it. And Augustine says, I know babies have a sinful nature because we baptize them. And in Augustine's mind, the point I want to make is that baptism is closely connected to the forgiveness of sins. In fact, that is the purpose of baptism in Augustine's mind. Well, let's talk about baptizing babies. We, we, we agree with Augustine then on, and the Roman Catholic Church as a whole on the purpose of baptism. You do it to get your sins forgiven. That's what the New Testament says. Acts 2.38, Acts 22.16, 1 Peter 3.21, other verses. But let's talk about baptizing people. One of the things that we do in Church of Christ is that we, we won't baptize babies. We baptize people who confess their faith. Now, we, we sometimes say adults, but then you have a, you know, an 11-year-old kid or something walk down the aisle and, and uh, get dunked under the water, and you say, is that an adult? Well, okay, whether you would define that as an adult, we, we will baptize people who confess their faith who are able to confess their faith in Jesus. That's who we're, we, we won't baptize a baby or a young kid because they, they don't do that. Certainly the baby doesn't. I, you know, Church of Christ argue about all kinds of things. You, you will be able to find in this day, in this town, you will be able to find a church of Christ that says you should not eat inside the church building. Now, some of you are very familiar with that, and some of you have never heard of that, and you think that's sort of strange. We will eat inside our church building, but the, you will find churches of Christ who, who will not eat inside the church building, who think that's, that's something you shouldn't do. You will find churches of Christ in this country, I guess, I'm not sure in this area, maybe, who, and I don't know if they do it during a pandemic or not, but that usually practice that you should take the Lord's Supper by just sharing one cup around the congregation. You will, you will be able to find congregation, churches of Christ who have taught that. Now, we don't do that. That's not our practice. We take individual cups. Churches of Christ will argue about different things. You will be able to find churches of Christ not too far from here who will worship God with instrumental music while they're singing. You will be able to find churches of Christ, people who have the name outside their building, Church of Christ. There will be people who have that name who will have women doing sort of public leadership roles in a worship service. Now, the... I don't believe you will find a people that has the name Church of Christ outside their building who will be willing to baptize a baby. I have not heard of people that call themselves Church of Christ who are willing to do that. There is pretty much agreement, as far as I know, in my experience, among us on this issue, we're not going to baptize a baby. We want that person to come confess their faith. We don't want somebody confessing faith for them. We want that person confessing faith. Now, the reason we have this idea is because 
of the New Testament. That is what we see in the New Testament. There is no example in the New Testament. Now, it, I admit, it, the New Testament does say, don't y'all baptize babies. It does not say that. But we have no example in the New Testament of anybody baptizing a young kid or baby. Uh, we have examples of people baptizing someone who confesses their faith. In fact, that's the whole, if anything, in the New Testament, salvation is connected to faith more closely than it's connected to baptism. And so we certainly don't want to baptize somebody who is, does not have faith. In fact, the early church, and this is agreed on from what I've read by even people who practice infant baptism, the early church didn't do it, or at least there is no clear example of people baptizing babies until, you know, the year 215, 230 AD, it's a couple hundred years after the time of Jesus if you want a book on that, by the way, this guy named Everett Ferguson has written a 900-page book on baptism in the first five centuries. If you want to know how baptism developed in the early church and where baby baptism came from and sprinkling and different kinds of things, Everett Ferguson is your man. He wrote a 900-page book, year 2009 is when it was published, and it's called Baptism. Now, if you want, if you don't want to read 900 pages on it, Everett Ferguson is still your man. He's got this book called Early Christian Speak, in which he quotes early Christian writers. Volume 1 has several chapters on baptism. He's got a chapter in there on how infant baptism developed. And we don't have clear reference to it until about the year 215 or so. And so, the Bible, early Christian history, suggests to us we baptize people that confess their faith. We baptize people that have sinned. And unlike Augustine, we do not teach, because the New Testament doesn't teach it either, that you inherit the sin of your forefathers. And so Augustine may have been worried that if that baby doesn't get baptized, it'll go to hell. I'm not worried about that. I'm not worried about that at all. We baptize people who confess their faith, who have sinned and need forgiveness of that sin. That's our practice of baptism. I, I don't think any one of those elements is distinctive to us, but you put them all together and it might very well be distinctive for our practice of baptism. But you know what? If, if you are going to brag about something, if you're going to take pride in something about yourself, it should not be your baptism. It should not be. In fact, that would be antithetical, contradictory to the entire purpose of baptism. If you're going to think what a great person you are, you need to think of some better way of thinking about that than because you did baptism the right way. Baptism, as Paul tells us in Romans 6, this is going back to the passage Andrew read for us, is not about taking pride in what a great Christian you are. 
Baptism is about dying to yourself so that Christ can live in you. I love my church because we practice baptism in the way that the New Testament says we are practice baptism. As far as I can tell, we do what the New Testament, the early church was doing with regard to baptism. But if we are really going to do that, then we also need to practice baptism as a death to ourselves. Here's a little pop quiz, movie pop quiz that I like to give sometime. What is the greatest scene on baptism in cinema history? It's, uh, should I tell you that I've seen this movie? It's The Godfather. You know, it's the Godfather. It's at the end of the first Godfather movie. We've got the little baby, Michael, Re uh, Michael Francis Rizzi, being, being sprinkled by the priest. It's a Catholic uh, baptism scene. Now, it's not, it's not the greatest movie scene on baptism because they're doing baptism the way I think the New Testament did baptism, but, but it's wonderful for other reasons that I'm about to tell you about. But, but this little baby is being baptized, and, and so... It's a baby being baptized. You know who his godfather is, don't you? It's Michael Corleone. And the reason it's a wonderful scene is because, because he is becoming this literal godfather for this little baby at the very same time that he is becoming the godfather for the mafia. And so it, it juxtaposes very uh, explicitly the two different types of life, the public life confessing faith for the purpose of this little baby and um, exacting vengeance on his enemies at that very moment. And so the priest asks the little baby. Now he asks the little baby, but Michael Corleone, the, the godfather, he is supposed to answer on behalf of the baby. And he asks the baby, do you renounce Satan? And the Godfather says, I do. And at that very moment, he has somebody killed. We see the scene intercut. He has somebody killed who is his enemy in the world of the mafia. And the priest asks the baby, do you, and his works, do you renounce Satan and all his works? And the Godfather says, I do. And he has somebody else killed. And all his pomp. I do, and he has somebody else killed. What's, what's wonderful about that is the hypocrisy on display. The hypocrisy on display. And it's a reminder to us, let us not be hypocritical in the way we practice baptism. We shouldn't be going down into that water thinking, oh, what a good boy am I. I'm doing baptism the way God told we should be thinking, I'm dying to myself so that Christ can live in me. You remember what Jesus said, if you want to be one of my disciples, if you want to be my disciple, what you need to do is you need to take up your cross. He said in, in Matthew 10, 39, this is what he said, if you find your life, you will lose it. If you lose your life for my sake... You're going to find it.
What you got to do is you got to lose your life. And that's not something we do just one time. We do it one time in the waters of baptism in order to symbolize our death to ourselves. But it is something that we are constantly involved in. In fact, in Luke 9, 23, Jesus says you need to take up your cross daily. It's not just something that's going to happen and you're going to flip a switch and you're going to be a perfect Christian after that. This is something you're going to have to do daily. Your baptism is a reminder of that. That's part of the reason we don't want to baptize babies because we want people remembering their baptism so that they can remember, I have died to I have died to myself so that Christ can live in me. We want people thinking along the same lines as Paul, I have been crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live yet not I, but Christ lives in me. It's Galatians 2.20. Paul says that applies to everyone. Galatians 5.24, he says, all Christians have crucified the flesh along with its passions and desires. Paul says in Romans 12, 1, you, what you need to do is you need to present your bodies as a living sacrifice. I've said it before, and I will say it again, that Christianity, in a lot of ways, is about figuring out how to die on behalf of Jesus. Just as, as Dietrich Bonhoeffer said, when Christ calls a man, he bids him come and die. That is the invitation of Christ. Come to the waters and kill the old manner of life and your desires, the flesh, so that I can live in you. And as we reflect on whether or not we do baptism, in the way the New Testament teaches us to do baptism. The idea of baptism as a death has to be in the forefront of our minds. Are we really dedicating ourselves to Christ in this action so that he can live through me and not satisfy my desires, not my will, but his be done? Michael Green says the whole of the Christian life, the whole of the Christian life in time and in eternity is in a sense encapsulated in baptism. The Christian life is a baptismal life and it is all about dying and rising with Christ in this world and hereafter. And to cite once again David De Silva, David De Silva, he suggests that people keep a bowl of water in their office or in their kitchen or somewhere so that they will see that bowl of water frequently throughout the day and they will reflect, I have been baptized. I belong to God. I am new in Christ. Christ. 